Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingspodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Nachrichten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Gehe einfach zu amazon.de slash gesundheitpodcasts, um noch mehr rund um Fitness und Gesundheit zu lernen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Veränderungen scheinen oft unmöglich, zu komplex und zu schwierig. Sind sie nicht. Expleo ist Experte für Digitalisierung und Engineering. Erfahrene Teams können Sie beraten, wie Sie die neuesten digitalen Innovationen auf Ihre Prozesse anwenden. Jetzt können Sie genau das Richtige ändern, ohne alles zu ändern. Expleo. Jetzt ist es möglich. Erfahren Sie mehr unter expleo.com. jetzt BBC Sounds. Music, Radio, Podcasts. Hello, I'm Claudia Hammond. Welcome to the evidence from the BBC World Service. This evening, I'm with an audience in the reading room at Welcome Collection in London. Now, this is an amazing museum and gallery and library which links science and medicine and life and art. So thanks very much, everyone, who's come along here today. Uh, could you give us a cheer, audience? Now, these lovely people here are going to help me in a while pick the brains of our expert panel, who I will introduce in just a moment. Now, the evidence is produced in collaboration with Welcome Collection, and in each episode, we examine the scientific evidence on a different topic. Today, it is the turn of the mouth. What can our teeth and gums tell us about the health of the rest of our bodies? Now, I have a question uh, to start off with for the audience, actually, that's with me this evening, which is... When was the last time you went to the dentist? Now, now be honest. Um, if it was less than six months ago, give me a cheer. Oh, you're good. Um, if it was more than six months ago, but less than two years ago, give me a cheer. If it was more than two years ago, give me a cheer. A few of you, a few of you. That's very, very honest there. I think that sounds better than the average for, for England, which is where we are. Um, the average from before the pandemic was that only half of adults had been to the dentist in the previous two years. And of course, not everyone can get the dental care they want. It is estimated that 2.4 billion people in the world have little or no access to a dentist. But it might be worth going to the dentist if you can, because according to a vast global study, all disease affects 3.5 billion of us. So that is nearly half of the world's population. Now, if you are looking after your teeth, then you are helping to prevent gum disease. But as we're about to uncover, you could also be going some way to avert diseases that at first glance might feel very far away from your mouths. It is really not just about your teeth and gums. There is so much more to it. So let's welcome the first two members of our panel. We have Professor Nikos Donos, who is Director of Research at the Institute of Dentistry at Queen Mary University of London, and Dr. Graham Lloyd-Jones, who is a consultant radiologist at Salisbury Hospital in the UK. Uh, Nikos, I wonder whether you're pleased or, or disappointed by our audience poll just now. How often should we be going to the dentist? 
Well, I'm not dissatisfied or satisfied. I think we should go as often as needed and uh, definitely maintain regular checkups according to the needs that we have and according to the ages. So visiting the dentist should be something that we should be doing and as we're going to discuss later on today, possibly will uh, allow us to know about our general health as well. Now, Graham, I think everyone would agree that it makes sense to have a dentist like Nick on our panel today. But what is a doctor doing on this panel on oral health, let alone a radiologist? Very good question. I find myself in a rather unusual position of being a doctor uh, talking about connections between oral disease and the body. I've begun to see the mouth now as an important immune organ in in the body. We, We do amazing things with the mouth. We eat, we bite, we chew, we swallow... We breathe, we kiss, all of these amazing things, but we don't think about the mouth as an important immune organ which protects us from the outside world. And did you get much training on oral health when you were training to be a doctor? (laughs) Very little. I had a very good education, was very conscientious, I think, but in five years of undergraduate training, I reckon I had less than one hour of training in dentistry. One hour? Yeah, and this is common. We learn about the oral manifestations of systemic diseases, diseases of the body, but we don't really get to grips with dentistry and dental care. And Nikos, what about you? Did you learn about the rest of the body when you were studying dentistry? Actually, yes. Uh, the dentists, we are obliged to learn about the rest of the body. So that at least in my country, I was educated in, in Greece and in Europe, this is very common. The first uh, two years is a joint pathway where dentistry and medicine, we work together. So we are well educated and we are well aware of what's happening in, in the rest of the body. And we connect the mouth with the body regularly. Uh, I'm actually surprised that it was only less than an hour or so. I'm very happy you're here. The way that you advocated my profession was great. I thought that you're a secret dentist in another life, maybe. (laughs) No, definitely not. (laughs) No, you can keep the mouth. (laughs) Now, now Nikos, we should start by saying that dentistry and and oral health is about much more than just teeth, isn't it? So you don't only focus on the mouth, you focus on gums in particular. What, What kinds of conditions do you see? Actually, when we are talking about the connections and the associations with different chronic diseases and other parts of the body, is actually the gum disease that is prevalent. So basically, when we talk about different gum diseases, at the different stages of gum diseases, the bleeding gums, the, the inflammation of the gums, the loss of the bone around the teeth that is part of the so-called periodontium, these are the things that are very relevant to the chronic diseases with other systems in the body. And how common is gum disease? Gum disease is the sixth most prevalent chronic disease in humankind. Well, severe periodontal disease, severe gum disease, is approximately 1.1 billion people. And if you want to put it on percentages, 11.2% of the adult uh, population. And Graham, I wonder how well people are looking after their teeth. I know you did a survey at your hospital in Salisbury in the south of England to try to work out how many people really brush their teeth. And you actually looked at patients coming into hospital who were going to stay overnight and looked to see how many brought a toothbrush with them. Yeah. Did they? You kind of assume that in hospitals all hygiene and all care is happening. And I come from a good hospital I'm very proud to work at. But we surveyed our COVID patients and our non-COVID patients and we were shocked to find that 37% of inpatients didn't have a toothbrush with them and most of them didn't know that they could ask for one so we have tried to change that and we've implemented a, a, a hospital-wide 
campaign really to do so that we can do better yeah which sounds like a good idea because you're getting people while they're while they're there and people who are unwell yeah and and actually it's based on evidence that that's well established now that if you pay attention to the oral hygiene of people in hospital and help them if they're immobile can't get to the bathroom whatever they can't manage it or forget to the simple data is that they go home quicker and they die less so all hospitals should be doing this and Nikos, I wonder whether sometimes as individuals we neglect the, maybe the signs of gum disease. I mean, things like, you know, bleeding gums. People may just think, oh, well, your gums bleed sometimes. I think this is uh, really common. People think that bleeding gums is, is normal. But, I mean, there's always a, a, a reference to an, an advertisement that many of us might have seen. Would you ever ignore blood running from your eye? Why would you ignore bleeding of your gums? However, a lot of the adult population go around with severe gum disease, and they do not necessarily pay attention to it. There is an element that there's this myth of gum disease being a silent disease, meaning that you do not have pain, and of course people associate dentistry with pain, and therefore they do not pay maybe the necessary attention. Well, let's get to the evidence about what it can do. Now, considering the way that medicine and dentistry do feel quite separate, it's surprising in a way that there are decades of solid evidence on the link between the health of the mouth and the rest of the body. So, Nikos, we're going to start with type 2 diabetes. Why is that a good place to begin? It's definitely one of the most researched areas where the associations between periodontal disease, gum disease, and diabetes exist in in the research, both in medical and in dental research. Actually, today, we're talking about a bidirectional approach, meaning that patients with uh, periodontal disease have possibility to develop diabetes uh, to a higher level, and patients with diabetes will have periodontal disease. Also, we call it that is the sixth complication of the diabetes is the periodontal disease. Furthermore, we know that even if you treat patients with periodontal disease that they are diabetic, actually the response to treatment, if it's uncontrolled diabetes, will be poorer. And, uh, of course, patients that they have diabetes have more severe gum disease than non-diabetic or healthy patients or controlled diabetic patients. And you've been able to show that if you have diabetes and then improve your dental health, it actually can make a difference. To the we, type 2 diabetes. It's true. We have, done, uh, we have done a study a few years ago that it was published in collaboration with uh, our colleague from medicine, and we have shown that if you actually treat the periodontal disease and uh, you treat it with the conventional way, non-surgical and surgical way that we would treat gum disease, then we have seen that actually the metabolic control of these patients improves significantly, and that is maintained with a reduction of approximately 0.6% at 12 months. So for 12 months, just by having the proper periodontal disease, metabolic control has improved. Now, this is very important because that equates like adding an additional medicine, additional drug to metformin for this type 2 diabetes patients, or if you can say it the other way, that for every percentage that you reduce the diabetes, then in these cases you actually significantly reduce the possibility for other complications related to, the, to diabetes. So, Graham, does that mean that in theory, if someone has diabetes and they get good treatment for their gums, that maybe you could even reduce the drugs they need to control the diabetes or not? Well, I'm not sure about reducing drugs, but as Nicole says, it's like adding a drug, except it's not dangerous. There's no side effect to treating something in the mouth, which we know we'll benefit from regardless. That doesn't mean to say it's easy necessarily, but the evidence is that if you have both diseases, periodontitis, severe gum disease, and you have diabetes, if you treat one, the other gets better and vice versa. And that makes sense 
when you're seeing the mouth as an immune organ, that if it's compromised, then inflammatory processes and even pathogens, bacteria from the mouth, overspill and evidently pass to many other parts of the body and are implicated in the disease development and worsening of many diseases, diseases that no one here wants. And Nikos, I noticed though that in reviews of the research, there does seem to be a suggestion that it might not work in the long term, improving the health of the gums, that it might work, you mentioned 12 months, that it seems to work for some time, but not for a long time when it comes to diabetes. Is that Why is that? Well, I mean, 12 months is quite a long time, to be honest, by having a, a treatment. But, of course, you need to maintain. The periodontal disease doesn't, is not just treated once and then that's, that's the end of it. You need to maintain, and therefore uh, you need to visit the dentist and the hygienist and the specialist regularly in order to maintain these levels of health. And could it work the other way around as well, Graham? Could dentists be the people to spot who might be at risk from diabetes by noticing that the, the state of their gums say? I think there's a lot of work in this area and increasing discussion between doctors and dentists about how better to integrate healthcare with doing exactly those things. Um, Talking with other people in this area, that's time-consuming, and of course it takes resources. But there are simple things that can be done. One thing that can't be done, perhaps, is taking blood pressure in a dentist because everyone has high blood pressure (laughs) when they go to the dentist. Yeah, I do see your point there. That's a problem there. Now, type 2 diabetes isn't the only condition associated with gum disease. There is growing evidence related to heart disease as well. So, Graham, first of all, can you tell us about a rare infection of the inside of the heart or the main arteries called endocarditis? Why could that be linked to the mouth? Well, this is the condition that all medical students learn about, and I vividly remember seeing a sick patient at Samaria's Hospital with infective endocarditis, fortunately a rare disease, but it's an infectious disease. This can happen, it can be through drug abuse as well, but specific oral organisms can get out of the mouth if you have dental conditions and if you have heart valve problems and infect your heart. I remember asking, well, why doesn't that happen with other diseases? And just being told, it doesn't. But winding back or moving forward to now, it's a long time ago since I went to medical school, it's evident that that anatomical route from the mouth with overspill of pathogens to the rest of the body via the blood is a real thing. Infective endocarditis is, a, is a, an infective disease, which we're not really talking about here. We're talking about commensal organisms, organisms that we are meant to have in our mouth, getting out of balance and crossing that physical barrier in our mouth and over time, over a long period of time, being delivered to our body in the blood and the inflammatory processes the body has to deal with that somehow that seems to be uh, leading to or worsening diseases in, in many diseases of the body. So is there evidence Nikos that our oral health can affect other aspects of heart health? Absolutely, uh, especially for severe gum disease, uh, we know that the, the element of the, the bacteria that they go through the bloodstream, they will move to the different parts of the body. So when we look, talk about atheromatic plaques, for example, we know that uh, from experimental studies, preclinical studies, but also from uh, other clinical observational studies, we know that bacteria, for example, will be on the atheromatic plaque. But also the component of the inflammation that you've been talking about Actually, through the bloodstream, the inflammatory components that exist due to gum disease that go through the bloodstream, and then they create, they make the atheromatic plaques even worse, and that, of course, create blood clots, which will have potentially uh, consequences for the patients from uh, ischemic uh, heart problems to strokes. 
So does that mean that um, things like brushing your teeth and, and flossing maybe could reduce the risk of heart disease? Well, uh, funny enough, uh, the, the brushing and any type of dentistry actually creates the bacteremia that we have been discussing. So when you go to the dentist sometimes, you create this kind of acute peak of inflammation. But, of course, maintaining a very good oral health reduces the amount of bacteria that you have in the mouth, reduces all of the potential combinations that, and the presence of these keystone pathogens bacteria who create this element of dysbiosis, meaning removing the balance between the bacteria which maintain the health in the gums. So flossing and brushing, in a sense, will maintain the equilibrium of the bacteria and will maintain the health in your mouth, but also will not allow bacteria to go to your bloodstream. Well, from the new now to the very old, as you know, here at Welcome Collection, there is a fabulous array of artifacts and documents which map the way We've been thinking about health all around the world today and, and throughout history. And I'd like to welcome onto the stage someone who's going to delve into this rich archive and show us evidence that, particularly in East Asia, the idea of a link between the mouth and the rest of the body is nothing new. So please welcome acupuncturist, anatomist and researcher at Hull York Medical School, Dr Vivian Shaw. <laughs> welcome, Vivian. So how does the mouth feature in your research? So in Chinese medicine, there is a long tradition of what's known as tongue diagnosis. This dates back about a thousand years. Yes, so there are some wonderful records of this link between the tongue and the rest of the body uh, that we see in traditional Chinese medicine. Now here we have a a big screen that our audience can see where we're going to bring up an image. Now this is a tongue diagnosis chart from 1341, as you say. Now for the millions listening, of course, who can't see this chart, can you describe it for us? I can see lines of what I I'm assuming our, our Chinese writing. And then there are four tongues across the middle of, of slightly different kind of shades of red and, and brown. What have we got there? Uh, so we have four different types of tongue that are associated with particular kinds of symptoms um, and they form part of an overall pattern um, and part of the Chinese writing that is underneath them is also talking about how you treat. So starting on the right, there's um, a tongue that's kind of uh, reddish-pinkish, and it's it's got little marks all over it. It's got sort of chevrons on it. What what would this tell you about the body? Uh, So this is a Ren Fisher tongue. Ren is the character for a man or a person. And if you imagine like a stick drawing, but without the arms, and you've got these three little Ren or chevrons that are stacked on top of each other in the centre. So the centre of the tongue in Chinese medicine is the area for the stomach. This is then a tongue that is showing uh, heat. So this person, um, as well as having their sort of red tongue with the with the fishes in it, they would probably also have some kind of gum disease, possibly ulcers, bleeding, that sort of thing. And the next tongue along has also got, it's, it's reddish as well, and it's got little lines on it. Yeah, so this one is called the worm-eaten tongue. And again, here you have an excess of heat. But in this case, this is heat that's created from having a stagnation in the centre. So if you imagine uh, you've had a really big meal, and then you're going for the cheese board, and then you're going for the port, and then you end up where the whole of the centre of your body is just like completely congested, and you get like the cheese sweats. For something like that, the treatment is actually to relieve the constipation. 
the drawing of the third tongue looks a bit worrying because it's, it's, it's reddish pink around the edge, but then the rest of it is black. Yeah, so this is a, quite a serious level of disease here. Um, and the, the, the black in the middle, in the text, it's described as being uh, thick and quite rigid and having barbs on it. In this case, the heat has been accumulating over a really long period of time. And so you've got this, this toxicity that has then become a part of, um, of the centre of your body. And so the treatment for this one is drugs or, or herbs that will open the bowels and encourage your body to evacuate and take the heat with it. But also then you take um, herbs that are specifically to clear toxins. And the fourth tongue's got a kind of big brownish patch on it, almost like a sort of upside-down heart shape. Yeah, so this is called a Yin tongue. This is as deep inside the body as it gets to go. This is somebody who is really very, very, very ill. And when you look at the tongue, there's this sort of greyish coating. It's not thick and black and stiff, uh, like in the black within tongue. This is, this is sort of like a mucky greyishness and at the tip you've got this sort of almost purpley black the tip of the tongue is to do with the heart and the lungs so this is an area where you've got real congestion in the heart and I was very interested when you were talking about endocarditis for this person they would have um, extreme anxiety you'd get that real um, I don't know if anybody else gets this where you get a real tension in your solar plexus and it, it doesn't matter how much you try to breathe in and you can't loosen it and you get ever increasing anxiety and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter and then you get um, what is called in Chinese medicine running piglet chi uh, where it's like perhaps you get to release some of it and you get this this sense of like something running up your chest running piglets I like that running little piglets. trotters running up your chest Graham isn't it fascinating to see that there was this interest in the mouth all those centuries ago when you've been telling us how in, in western medicine it's been neglected in a way yeah it's fascinating I mean I have to confess to know nothing about uh, Chinese medicine but this is this is very interesting and and it kind of makes sense doesn't it that the mouth we're talking about putting the mouth back in the body well it begs the question who took it out in the first place and Vivian I suppose back then obviously people didn't have you know x-rays and body scans to try to diagnose problems so in a way was it using the mouth as a, a way of looking inside the body or trying to guess what might be going on further down in the body absolutely yeah so I think the main diagnostic tools that you have in Chinese medicine are taking the pulse looking at the tongue and it is as you say it's 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 the way in which you can look um, directly inside. Well, thank you very much for showing us this today. And while we have you here, um, I'd love it if you could answer any questions our audience might have. Does anybody have um, a question for, for Vivian about, about what she's been talking about? Oh, yes, we have somebody in the second row just here. Thank you very much for your presentation. How long do you think it will take to bridge the gap in knowledge between the Chinese medicine or the Eastern, Southern or the northern medicines and the western medicine? So I think that at the moment there is a real interest in acupuncture um, and herbal medicine. It's no longer just something that you go to as a special thing. It's becoming progressively more integrated. And long may that continue and, and deeper may that go. And I thought it was interesting that you've, you've been working in medical schools yourself. Yes. I had a eureka moment um, where I was on an anatomy course. I had an opportunity to go and study the human body in a medical school context. And in that moment, I looked at the body and I went, acupuncture is physical. 
it's it's real. I can look at it. I can see where things are. When you look at the original medical text, particularly for acupuncture, they talk about doing dissection. There are historical records at the time that talk about doing dissection in order to understand the body, in order to understand the blood systems, in order to help medicine. So that scientific understanding of the body is as much a part of Chinese medicine as it is of Western medicine. Thank you very much to Dr Vivian Shaw. We are breaking for the BBC News now, but I'll be back soon with more from Professor Nikos Donos and Dr Graham Lloyd-Jones. And we'll be joined by Dr Christina Wanyoni-Kay to talk about how we might start to fight diseases through better oral health care. Hello, I'm Claudia Hammond. Welcome back to Welcome Collection in London, where I'm with a live audience who can now make themselves known. This is the evidence from the BBC World Service, and we are exploring the sometimes unexpected ways that the health of our mouths, our gums, our teeth, and our tongues might help us to understand more about the health of the rest of our bodies. Now, before the news, we looked at some of the well-established links between oral health and diabetes and heart disease. Next, we're going to look at some of the newer evidence and some more cutting-edge ideas about what might be going on. Professor Nikos Donos from Queen Mary University of London and Dr. Graham Lloyd-Jones, consultant in radiology at Salisbury Hospital in the UK, are still with me. And we're joined by Dr. Christina Wanyoni-Kay, who is a public health dentist and research program leader at the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute, based at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Thank you for joining us, um, Christina. Now, you first trained as a dentist in Kenya, and unlike some of the training we've heard about so far, I gather you were doing things like treating malaria and HIV before you ever learnt about filling a tooth. Absolutely right, Claudia. I think my interest in this subject basically stems from my background training. So... I often joke and say that you could probably have trusted me to tell you if you had an enlarged liver rather than with a drill when I first graduated. (laughs) You would have about a year in internal medicine as a dentist um, and probably about six months in, in general surgery before they let you anywhere near anyone's mouth. So it it was that training that prepared me for what I found when I started to practice. There was a great need for a dentist to have a very broad view. Um, there were very many complex cases. HIV was a real pandemic, and we often thought that 60% of the people we were treating in a hospital might actually be immunosuppressed. So you were always constantly thinking, um, what else is going on? You were, you were seeing the oral manifestations of systemic illnesses all the time. And some of the newest evidence on oral health is showing that at certain times of life, uh, we might be more at risk of developing serious health problems. And I know that you've researched oral health in older people, and and you've looked specifically at at dementia. What what is the connection there? There is emerging evidence that cognitive decline might be linked to functional dentition. Um, We have this magic number of 21 teeth in your mouth. And I'm sure some of my colleagues here will say that the the evidence is quite tenuous around that, so up for discussion. However, we are certainly clear that, you know, should you have some form of cognitive decline, you might lose your dexterity. And we can imagine what that would do in terms of, you know, brushing your teeth and flossing. So some of the work we've been looking into is to integrate, 
you know, oral health care into social care as well. So I can see that if somebody already has a lot of, um, say, you know, memory problems and difficulties, then they're not going to perhaps be able to remember to do their teeth. But are you suggesting it could happen the other way around as well? Are you suggesting that having, uh, you know, gum disease and, and difficulties with your mouth in the first place might be contributing to cognitive decline? Yeah, so there's certainly studies that are starting to indicate that. Not enough studies. I think the question here is whether it's linked to something of nutrition as well. So if you don't have enough teeth in your mouth, um, you know, you're likely to be having poorer nutrition, and that has already been linked to cognitive decline as well. Graham and Nikos, what, what do you make of the, of the evidence on this? Graham? Well, to me, as someone who is coming to this table from trying to understand the body, there's compelling evidence to me about biological plausibility. When we're talking about does gum disease cause diseases of the body... That's a complex question. But one element is, if I can add in an anatomical concept here, that there are specific oral organisms that are related to the development and worsening of gum disease, and there's an array of usual suspects. One is called Porphyrimonus gingivalis, which is implicated in many diseases of the body, chronic diseases of the body. So is this a specific bacteria? Yeah, it's a specific bacteria that is a dysbiotic bacteria, but it is, it's a very interesting organism. It coats itself with neurotoxins. They kill nerve cells, simply put. But that organism doesn't just stay in the mouth. It isn't just a part of gum disease. It evidently gets out of the, the mouth through our bleeding gums, our inflamed gums, and travels around the body. And it's found in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease and in their cerebrospinal fluid and not in the patients without Alzheimer's disease. There's emerging evidence really about Alzheimer's, but um, when you know also that there's evidence that dental treatments to some extent, that people are starting to work on this, actually improves function, not just a sense of well-being and dignity, which is really important, but also improvement of cognitive scoring. Yeah, so Nikos, how, how good would you say the link is? I know Christina said some people will say the link is tenuous. I think there are studies that indicate uh, the, the strength that Christina was talking about, but there are also other studies that indicate that the link might not be that, uh, uh, that strong as is discussed. The truth of the matter, though, is that our population is aging. This type of diseases may uh, become even more prevalent in the future. So if there is truth in what was discussed in this panel, then it, the important part is that we need to prevent these periodontal diseases to occur in the first place. A point though, that is becoming very interesting on this specific and the cognitive diseases and more specifically all Alzheimer's is the, the saliva. There proteins that they can be traced in the saliva and in that way you can uh, diagnose it, make a diagnosis or a prognosis if you will have um, uh, Alzheimer's or not. Of course this is still a matter of debate, a matter of research, but of course very promising because saliva is so accessible. Yeah, so that's something quite sort of cutting edge there where more, more research is needed but, but does sound very interesting. Now Christina, there's another time in people's lives when the science suggests you can become more at risk of oral disease and that is during pregnancy. Why is good oral health so important for mothers-to-be? Um, so hormonal changes actually leave mothers quite vulnerable. So all these bugs that we've been talking about, being able to cross back and forth through all the barriers that we have that protect us, becomes something that we're very concerned with. And we're actually concerned with actual birth as well. There's chances of having um, premature birth, uh, low birth weight babies. Um, so it is a really crucial time to be uh, speaking to mothers or to be providing the right kind of 
uh, dental care that they need. You often hear people talking about, oh, I never had to go to the dentist until I had a child. And so these are some of the indications in terms of when we start to think about what we want to do, where should we put our resources within our healthcare system? And if we're talking about people who are more at risk from oral disease, then of course surely we need to talk about people who, who don't have access to good dental care and you know, just can't get a dentist available where they live. What sort of impact does that, that have on them? Yeah, so this is the other group that we, we kind of think of as suffering and could benefit the most. So those who are in the fringes and the margins of society, as you would say. Uh, so we're talking about people who might be suffering from problems with alcohol, substance abuse. A lot of the public health programs that look to help these people should also be thinking about, can we give them advice around their oral health? I think one of the things that uh, I'm sure Nikos will join me in saying, all oral diseases are preventable. And that's really powerful if you keep that in mind, that every single time anyone has the opportunity to access a service, we need to make that count. That is quite, a, quite an interesting claim there, um, Nikos, that every oral disease is preventable. Uh, preventable and up to a certain extent uh, treatable as well. When we go to cancer, it's a completely different story, of course. But when we talk about uh, dental diseases and gum diseases, they are preventable and treatable. And there was a, a concept for many years that you go to the dentist to be treated, whereas we actually need to go back to basics and realize that we should go back to dentists and be prevent the disease. And there are models uh, in, in Europe, in Scandinavia more specifically, where the periodontal disease, dental caries have been prevented. This is the way forward, prevention. And at the same time, together with our medical colleagues, we need to start integrating medicine and dentistry. So when we are visiting our doctor, when we are visiting our dentist, when we go to the hospital, then we don't just only look at the tooth at the liver, but we actually look at the whole body and which symptoms may be correlated. And we need to have the knowledge to address them and inform our patients. And Christina, does it follow that if you live in a low-income country and maybe don't have access to good dental care or, or any access to dental care in some places, does that mean that your, I don't know, teeth and gums will necessarily be in a worse state or does it depend on what people eat? I think it's, it's, it's changing. There's very little data on the oral health in some of the low- and middle-income countries. However, what we found in early years is that actually tooth decay wasn't that bad. And one starts to think about why are things changing in the mouth. I know we're talking about gum disease right now, but really just talking about healthy mouths. Um, people in some of these countries had very healthy mouths. One, the water was naturally, is naturally fluoridated. Secondly, the diet. The diet was much better than what we have here. Some of these sugary drinks that we never had are now reaching into these communities. It wasn't really uh, the case that you actually had to have bad oral health because you're in a low- and middle-income country, but it's changing now. And Graham, is, is diet something we need to focus on more when it comes to oral health? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I mean, I'm not an expert in diet either, but whenever people ask, um, you know, how do I look after the mouth? Um, well, they think about going to the dentist more, and there are lots of issues related to access to dentists and quality of dental care and affordability, of course, of dental care. And then people talk about personal oral hygiene. Both of those things are very important. But actually, we need to think about, again, back to that concept of the mouth being an immune barrier and us needing to care for it, caring for the microbes in our mouth that have evolved with us. They're there to defend us. Whenever we feed ourselves 
we're actually feeding our, our microbiome. So this is the mixture yeah. of bacteria yeah. that we have, say, in the gut or, or in the mouth. All of that, yeah. But I think the concept here that is a sort of slightly different thing is that doctors think about diet for the body and dentists think about diet for the mouth. Actually, there's a third element, which is having a good diet for your mouth in order to protect the mouth environment, which actually potentially benefits the body. The other aspect, of course, is smoking and vaping. Nikos. When you're a smoker and you have gum disease, your treatment will not be as effective and actually your gum disease will be uh, more severe. So I would certainly agree with what you just said, that we need to control also the different other factors. It's not only the disease, it's also what we're doing and how our, what we're doing within our environment. Again, something for the future and a lot of work and discussion is how mouth and gut microbiota are affecting each other, uh, again, indicates that the mouth is not just the mouth and the gut is just the gut. There is a connection across. Well, I want to turn now to, to another connection and a brand new area of research when it comes to oral health, and that is these emerging links with COVID-19. Now, Graham, it was actually due to COVID-19 that you became interested in our oral health. How, how did that happen? Where, where's the link here? <laughs> Wait, how did I get down this rabbit hole? <laughs> Well, my background is that I'm an educator in radiology and medical imaging, and at the outset of the pandemic, I wanted to teach doctors how to make the diagnosis of COVID-19 on a chest X-ray and use of CT scans. And really, that was quite a surprisingly easy task because it causes such a distinct disease that we don't see in any other types of pneumonia, and it affects the bottom and the back and the sides of the lungs on both sides. This is highly unusual, so it becomes quite easy to to make the diagnosis the question I had was you know why is it doing this and really the characteristics and the distribution of the disease tell us that COVID-19 is a vascular disease of the lungs it's not a conventional pneumonia it's more disease of the blood vessels with clotting and congestions in the depth of the lungs and the airways are not inflamed as they are in influenza and that's what led me to look more into how the virus gets into the upper respiratory tract and we can think about the mouth as being like a like a viral factory in those initial early days of the disease work has shown the high viral loading of saliva that's a better predictor it's reported of death than even the patient's age couldn't that higher risk of death be down to all the other diseases that we know are associated with gum disease so they might be the people might be more unhealthy in, in other ways yeah picking apart causality and association is very difficult you know what, what's going on with COVID remains at this stage an emerging field of evidence. But having said that, it does make sense to look after your mouth if, if you've got COVID. But really the bigger picture for me is that this has drawn my attention to the work that is being done by Nikos and by other people in this field. The question is, to what degree is gum disease either causing these diseases or worsening the prognosis of these diseases? And the evidence is not difficult to come across. It's very difficult to keep up. But with COVID, the most well-established route into the body is still to be considered breathing in through the nose, isn't it? Yeah, we, well, we do know that the virus is clearly inhaled. It's inhaled into the lungs. It infects the airways of the lungs, but it doesn't cause an airways disease. Mm. So there's something, going, something else going on that we need to explain. So, Nikos, I know you've been doing some work in this area too. What, what do you make of the whole idea? Well, I certainly agree with what has been said so far. Um, and um, we know that in, within, uh, within the study that we did with the Delta variant, which we published uh, a few months ago, we have seen actually that the 85% of these patients, they had high levels of viral load in their saliva. So saliva 
could potentially be a way of screening or monitoring for potential disease. There is a plausible biological mechanism. The data indicate that with severe gum disease we have more severe symptoms of COVID. So I think there's definitely an area that needs to be uh, to be researched further. Yeah, so it's one where we need to look a bit more to be able to answer um, some of those questions. Now, in a moment, it is time for questions from our audience here in the reading room at Welcome Collection. So do be thinking what you'd like to ask. But first, I want to put something actually to our audience here, um, and that is fear. We all know we need to go to the dentist, and where we're sitting now, surrounded by all these um, historical objects, there is a kind of really slightly slightly scary, old-fashioned dentist tree of stuff you might find in an old dentist surgery. There's a, a, a sink to spit into and all sorts of things and a kind of contraption. It's slightly scary. I wondered who here is scared of dentists. So I would say give me a cheer, but I think actually maybe we need a boo this time. Um, would you boo if you're afraid of going to the dentist and it is allowed? Yeah, there are, you see, there are a few people there. Um, and there are scientific terms for these things. Dentophobia is fear of dentists. Iatrophobia is fear of doctors. You know, Nikos and Christina, you don't, you don't look scary. But, um, Christina, why, why do you think some people are, are scared of going to the dentist? And is, is that stopping people from getting the care they need? Yeah, so actually statistics suggest that um, about 10% of UK adults are, are dentally phobic. So I, I don't know if that number quite uh, matches with the response. But um, I think this comes from when, when do you start going to the dentist? It's also quite a scary environment, truly. You're very vulnerable. You're lying there. You're quite flat. And often people say the dentist like talks at you and you can't talk back. But I think the idea around not understanding what happens at the dentist is the issue. There was a campaign about going to the dentist by the age of one. And once you have that modelling in your system quite early on, uh, you're likely to carry on with, the, you know, with attendance quite well throughout your life. And I'm guessing that all of you would like dentists and doctors to work more together because you're all people who are interested in these connections. Now, Nikos, what, what do you think can be done to encourage dentists and doctors to work more together so that these aren't seen as these separate things? For sure, undergraduate education becomes very important. I think what we just said, that the medics and the dentist and the pharmacist and the nurses they need to have the common modules, the common interdisciplinary components so they know about each other's uh, disciplines, but also each other's diseases and how to diagnose them and treat them. I think education for the public becomes very important, so the public asks the questions. Then is the official bodies, like the European Federation of Periodontology and the different associations, medical associations, where they need to collaborate and work together and create specific guidelines. So when you go to your GP, and you have diabetes or you have cardiovascular problems, the GB should not only deal with blood glucose or the components of heart disease, but actually say, do you know that you may have gum disease? Have you checked with your dentist? Do you think this might happen, Graham? Well, I, I think that every medical student needs to be taught about the connections between mouth disease and diseases of the body. And actually also doctors who are practicing at the moment, particularly in the area of diabetes and cardiovascular disease and rheumatoid arthritis and all these other diseases where there are emerging or established connections. And I, I've, I've challenged my colleagues at work and said, well, you know, you seem to know, some of you seem to know about these connections. Why aren't you sending your patients to the dentist? All of us, it doesn't matter who you are, wherever you're listening, Everybody needs to pay more attention to looking after the mouth. Christina, have you seen examples where doctors and dentists have worked well together in the world? 
Uh, I think there's many attempts. There are some successes, but what we need to think about is things that have worked at large scale. So I can, I can probably give one example, which is uh, campaigns that were run in Japan, uh, I think in, in 1989, where they had what they called the 80-20 campaign, which was to keep 20 teeth in your mouth until you were the age of 80. Why 20? Back to the functional dentition, I think, which is the number of teeth you need to ha- actually maintain good nutrition and, and function properly in terms of eating and smiling, I think, as well. That was a campaign quite ambitious at the time because I think, I think most people over 80 at the time um, had seven teeth. They actually were successful. I think their target was 2022. and the year 2000, they had 51% of, of their population who had retained 20 teeth up to the age of 80. They had hoped for 50%. Well, let's take some questions uh, from the audience now. Oh, we've got lots of questions already. There was somebody in the middle just there. There's lots of um, concern and research about the effect of alcohol on, on health. I'm wondering if there are specific issues with alcohol and oral health. Nicholas. There is some uh, studies indicating that uh, patients that do abuse of alcohol, they have more serious periodontal disease. There's uh, no clear pathway because of alcohol that you're going to have periodontal disease. So there's an element of an association. And, of course, it's one of the advices that as oral health, uh, uh, health workers and gum specialists or dentists, we would advise our patients, we will take that as a question. We will advise to reduce their alcohol consumption. And let's take another question. Yeah, there's someone just here. I'm just wondering if everyone should take one further step back and uh, think about nutrition and particularly diets provided for captive audiences. I go regularly into a, a, a residential home. Most residents have dementia there. And really, if I see what's in the kitchens uh, provided, it's iced cakes, it's, you know, everything abominable for the, for the gum and the teeth, I would think. Uh, similarly, in hospitals, I don't want to put a further burden on uh, the medical profession, but why aren't they waging war about the food provided in hospitals? Graham, what do you think about this? <laughs> That's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> There's a move at the moment to raise awareness, particularly when it comes to the harm of refined sugars on the biology of our mouth. And Yes, in care homes, yes, in hospitals. We're kind of guilty, aren't we? There's a, there's a chap in New Zealand, Dr. Beaglehole is his name, and uh, he's a dentist, and he has campaigned for his hospital to go sh- completely sugar-free. And I think that that's what we need to do, to set an example. Now, that is really ambitious, but we have tobacco-free hospitals, and now there is increasing awareness of the harms of sugar, not just to our body, but our mouth, and like I said earlier, because of the harms that come to our body through harming our mouth. Somebody just here, another question. In the UK, we already teach our dental students a lot of human biology and health and disease, but could we be more radical even and fully integrate our early years teaching for medicine, dentistry, and allied health to really get a, in the future a fully integrated healthcare system rather than this compartmentalization that we have today? Yeah, do you think that would work here? I certainly 
think that would work. And, and it's not very long ago that that was the case. And it certainly does make financial sense to train people together. That's certainly what happens in, in sub-Saharan Africa where there are dental schools because running the early years training and the medical training on its own would be quite expensive. So I would be very supportive. So, Nikos, it does vary a lot in different countries, doesn't it? It does. And different parts of Europe, they do actually have this parallel training between dentistry and medicine. If you go a little bit further, if you go to South East Asia, like Singapore, uh, this is something that is taking place. Now, before I let you go, there is something that all of us can do to make a difference, and of course, that is to brush our teeth. So, Nikos, this is your chance to give tens of millions of people listening, and the World Service really does have tens of millions of listeners, an evidence-based answer on how to brush our teeth properly. What should we be doing? Well, there are different ways of brushing your teeth, with a manual brush or with an electric brush. Let's have a vote on that. Let's find out. Can you cheer if you use an electric toothbrush? And can you cheer if you use a manual toothbrush? Yay! Oh, I think that was slightly more electric. Do you, do you agree with me there? Well, the evidence is that the electric power brushes are more effective up to a certain extent than manual. There are data uh, on that. But the, it's not only the toothbrushing technique of the toothbrush, it's also the small brushes that you put in between the teeth, which is also extremely uh, effective. And it's actually very important for the prevention of uh, uh, periodontal diseases. Also, there's a little bit of a myth of the two minutes. So two minutes is only for very low-risk individuals. You want longer than two minutes? A much longer, yes. How much much longer? As long as it needs to cover your needs. And this is depending how many teeth you have, what is your periodontal condition, what is your dental condition. Your dentist and your hygienist and therapist should be able to demonstrate in your mouth and what is the most effective way of doing it. It's no way that a person can know by themselves, know how to do it. And Christina, how many times do we need to be doing our, our teeth a day and before or after breakfast? That's always a big question. Oh, that debate, it's gone back and forth. Um, so I think the main thing is um, once at night, before you, you know, before you go and sleep and one other time actually, that's, that's the recommended evidence now. So you pick the other time during the day. Back to what Nico said in terms of technique, and, and knowing how to do it. I think the main thing is, do you cover all the sides in your mouth? And, and that might take one person two minutes, and that might take someone else 10 minutes. And also, it's, it's fluoridated toothpaste as well. So a lot of the gains we've had in terms of uh, improving tooth decay rates has been related to brushing with uh, fluoridated toothpaste. Anything you want to do add to, add to any of that, Graham, as a doctor instead? I think it's... It's important that people realise that there's evidence now to show that these simple things really do make a difference. There's a study that was published in February of this year which took a population of people from the outpatient setting, half from cardiac clinic and half from other settings, and they just followed their dental hygiene practices. This is just toothbrushing and flossing. They studied those people over an 18-year period and they found a 51% reduction in cardiovascular mortality. So death from heart disease in people who had good oral hygiene, brushing your teeth a couple of times a day and flossing. So it's something we should all definitely be doing and trying to do the right way as well. Absolutely. Thank you to our panel, Graham Lloyd-Jones, Christina Wanyoni-Kay, Nikos Donos and Vivian Shaw. This show is made in collaboration with Welcome Collection. Thank you to the team for making us feel so welcome here in the reading room. The producer is Claire Salisbury and our studio engineers are Giles Aspen and Bob Nettles. And thank you to all of you in the audience for coming. I'm Claudia Hammond and to hear more on global health, do join me every Wednesday on the BBC World Service for Health Check. Bye for now.
Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingspodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Nachrichten. Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Gehe einfach zu amazon.de slash gesundheitpodcasts, um noch mehr rund um Fitness und Gesundheit zu lernen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Veränderungen scheinen oft unmöglich, zu komplex und zu schwierig. Sind sie nicht. Expleo ist Experte für Digitalisierung und Engineering. Erfahrene Teams können Sie beraten, wie Sie die neuesten digitalen Innovationen auf Ihre Prozesse anwenden. Jetzt können Sie genau das Richtige ändern, ohne alles zu ändern. Expleo. Jetzt ist es möglich. Erfahren Sie mehr unter expleo.com. jetzt.